Father, we ask that you would speak now through the words of this book, the Gospel of John, that we might trust, that we might continue to trust, that we might grow in our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray. Amen. The end of John's Gospel is really a new beginning. Uh, the end of John's Gospel is not just a happy ending, it is a happy beginning. Uh, the ending of John's Gospel sets us up for what comes next, so we can see how Jesus will continue his work in the world through his church. Uh, there are three characters here, Jesus, Peter, and John. And Jesus is setting up Peter and John to carry forward his mission. Uh, certainly Peter and John had unique roles to play in history, complementary roles as we'll see, but they had unique roles to play in history in laying the foundation for the church. This is what is happening during what we might call the apostolic era from roughly 30 A.D. down to 70 A.D. as the apostles were still alive and ministering. Uh, but Peter and John also give us a lens through which we can view the whole of the Christian life. Peter and John give us a lens through which we can see what the Christian life is all about. They really serve as paradigms of Christian experience and Christian mission. Consider Peter first. He'll really be our focus uh, this morning since he's really the focus of the story here throughout chapter 21. We've already seen in looking at this how Jesus has a communion meal with Peter and then commissions him to carry on his pastoral work. Uh, we've already seen how Peter's threefold deni denial of Jesus around a fire is matched by a threefold restoration of Peter around a fire as Jesus affirms him and, and, and uh, again uh, gives him this apostolic calling. But there are other details here that show us what Jesus is doing with Peter, what Jesus is calling Peter to do. So consider some of these. After an unsuccessful night of fishing, uh, Jesus called out to them from the shore and told them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. And then when they had this huge haul of fish and Peter realizes this is Jesus on the shore, Peter casts himself into the waters. And the same verb is used for the net that's used for Peter. Casting the net into the water and then Peter casting himself into the water, which is a way of indicating, it's a way of signaling, I think, that Jesus, will, that Peter will be Jesus' net. How will Jesus catch all these fish, this great multitude? Of course, fishing is, uh, is an allegory for evangelism. Jesus is going to use Peter to bring in this great haul of fish, this massive catch. He won't be the only one, but he'll be the start of it, which you see at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We also see that Jesus is going to give Peter all the strength he needs. No doubt Peter felt weak uh, after his denial, but here we see Jesus giving Peter incredible strength. There are at least two feats of superhuman strength uh, in John chapter 21. Before Peter jumps in the water to swim to shore, he actually puts on his outer garment. Now, normally you'd want to wear less clothing rather than more if you're going to jump in the sea and swim to shore. But what Peter does is sort of like putting on your coat and tie right before jumping in the ocean. It wouldn't seem to be very smart. It'd be a lot harder to swim. But Peter girds himself, he dresses himself, and then he is still able to swim to shore, even though he would have been weighed down with his outer garment. And then it's even more spectacular, when Peter gets to shore, he drags the net with 153 
fish all by himself. The other disciples could hardly handle the full net, all of them together. It was so many fish that normally the net would have broken, uh, we're told. But in verse 11, we're told that Peter dragged the net full of 153 large fish all by himself. It's really something of a miracle. It shows Jesus restoring Peter's strength, giving him the strength he will need to carry out this mission. Now, combine this imagery of fishing that you see going on here with what Jesus tells Peter in verses 15, 16, and 17 when he commands Peter to tend to my sheep and to feed my lambs. And what do you have? Peter, who had fallen so badly as an apostle and as a disciple, is being restored. And he's being restored to a very specific calling within the church. And really it's a dual calling, uh, a double calling within the church. He will be both a fisher of men and a shepherd of sheep. That is to say, he's going to carry out this double vocation as both a fisherman and a shepherd. He's going to be a missionary and a pastor, an evangelist and an elder. Peter not only has a role in the church, a foundational role, he's also symbolic of the church as a whole. He's symbolic of the whole church. Uh, His double vocation of gathering and ministering to God's people is a sign of what the whole church is about. Sometimes we talk about this as mission and maturity here at TPC, or the confessional language we have is gathering and perfecting God's people. It's this double mission of the church to go out into the world and to bring people in and to minister to one another, to strengthen one another. It's this double calling of the church. Both are represented by Peter. Both will be embodied in Peter. But then Peter is told this great strength he has, uh, this great physical strength that he has shown, which is really symbolic of the strength and power he's going to have in God's spirit as a missionary uh, and as a pastor. Uh, This great strength that he has will not keep him from suffering. We know that already from Jesus. Jesus is omnipotent, of course. He's God in the flesh, the Word made flesh. But he suffers on a cross. His strength, indeed, is manifested in that suffering. His strength is evident in that suffering. And so it is, or so it will be, with Peter. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus goes on to tell Peter, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Thus he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Think about what's happening here. Peter has just confessed his love for Jesus. What Peter is going to learn, indeed what we all must learn, is that love means death. Love means death. Love means using strength to serve others. Love means sacrifice. Love means self-giving. Today, too many of our definitions of love are cheap. They're flimsy. They're based on nothing more than fleeting feelings. Jesus says to Peter, okay, you love me, great. Let me tell you what that means. It means you're going to have to die. Love always means death. 
When a man and a woman marry one another because they love one another, what happens? They die to their old selves. They die to other opportunities as they forsake all others. They die to one another daily that they might serve one another within their marriage. When a mother loves her child, what does she do? She dies to herself. She dies to her schedule. She dies to that sleep she would rather have in a way. She, she dies to herself in order to keep that child alive and to help that child thrive. It's an expression of love, love in the form of death. Peter and the other apostles will give their lives to and for the sake of the church that they love. And they will do so for the Lord they love who has called them to them. Peter here learns that love means death. Peter learns here for him, uh, it even means a very specific kind of death. It means death by crucifixion, which Jesus describes as a death with outstretched arms. It's very interesting if you go back to John chapter 13, uh, the upper room where Jesus is with his disciples. This is before his death. This is the night of his betrayal. In John 13, verses 36 to 38, uh, Jesus has talked about his departure, and Peter asked the question, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And we know how that boast turned out later that night. Peter said he was ready to, to die for Jesus then, that if Jesus was going to his death, that Peter would go right along with him, that he was going to be bold and brave as a follower of Jesus. But we know that wasn't the case. Indeed, Jesus goes on from there to predict that Peter would uh, deny him three times that very night. That very night, Peter would deny him three times. But now Jesus makes a different kind of prediction over Peter's life. As it turns out, Peter will follow uh, where Jesus has gone. What Peter boasted about and then failed to do, in the future, he will do. He will be a martyr. He will go with Jesus. He will follow Jesus to death. Like the good shepherd before him, he will lay down his life for the sake of the sheep with outstretched horns. Peter will follow Jesus even in the manner of death. He will go to the cross as Jesus did. He will go where Jesus has gone. That language of stretching out his hands it's reminiscent of a lot of different things in Scripture. Certainly it reminds us of Moses stretching out his hands in prayer in Exodus 17. And when he held out his arms, interceding for the people, they were able to get the victory. Uh, it reminds us of Isaiah 65 too, where we're told that the Lord stretches out his hands before a rebellious nation of people. It could be the Lord stretching out his hands to his people, but also stretching out his hands for his people. It could even be understood as a prophecy of the, of the crucifixion. It was common language, this language of stretching out your hands. This was common language uh, in the ancient world used to describe being crucified. Peter failed to follow Jesus to the cross before, but in the end, this is how he will die. And various church historians and early church fathers like Eusebius and Tertullian and Origen all tell us Peter did indeed die by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. In fact, when he was going to be crucified, he requested that he be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in exactly the same manner that Jesus, his Lord, had died. And in this way, his death glorified God.
because his death is his supreme show of love to his Lord. And so Peter is told how his story will go, how the story of his life will go. Peter will live the rest of his life under the shadow of this prophecy. He knows what's coming. He will live under a death sentence, uh, as it were. He's like a dead man walking from now on. Indeed, by the time he writes the letter of 2 Peter, he knows that his death is near at hand, that his hourglass is almost out of sand. But what's interesting is, uh, after Jesus tells Peter how his story is going to go, Peter turns around and sees the disciple Jesus loved, obviously John, and Peter asks about his story. How will his story go? Lord, what about him? And Jesus basically says to Peter, mind your own business. If I will that he remain until my final coming, what is that to you? You follow me. C.S. Lewis captures this really well in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, in The Horse and His Boy. Uh, Shasta uh, asks the Christ figure, Aslan, the lion, about what's going to happen to another character in the story, Erebus. And Aslan says this, I am telling you your story, child, not hers. I I tell no one any story but his own. I tell no one any story but his own. And that scene actually repeats itself in the book. Aslan is making the same point as Jesus, and he does it multiple times, because you know what? Like Peter, and like those characters in The Horse and His Boy, we have a tendency to be nosy, don't we? We have a tendency to be busybodies, to want to compare what God has ordained for us with what God has ordained for others. And we want to compare notes and see how our story's going and how their story's going, and we try to make those kind of comparisons. But we have to understand those comparisons are deadly. Those kinds of comparisons are deadly because they make contentment impossible. No two stories are identical. So don't worry about what God has ordained for others. Focus instead on your own responsibility, the calling God has given to you. You follow Jesus. That's your responsibility. That's all you need to focus on. God has scripted your story, and it's not really your business to know the story he has authored for others. So what have we learned from Peter, from the curious case of Peter the Apostle? Well, there are various episodes in Peter's life. Uh, These different episodes in Peter's life are relatable, I think, to every Christian. These different chapters in Peter's story correspond to various experiences that every Christian is going to go through. There's Peter's prideful boasting. There are Peter's humiliating failures again and again. There is his experience of the Lord's grace, the Lord's forgiveness, the Lord's restoration. There is his participation in the mission of the church. There's his growing love for the Lord. There's his sacrifice, his suffering, the way he faces death in the end. This is what a believing life looks like. This is what the Christian life looks like. Every disciple can relate to this vast array of experiences Peter goes through because we've all been there or we will be there. Like Peter, we've made our messes. Times when our love for the Lord faltered. Like Peter, we've been lifted up by God's grace. Like Peter, we know we have our cup of suffering to drink. 
Like Peter, we need to learn to mind our own business sometimes to not make these kinds of comparisons. These are the chapters of our lives. The episodes in Peter's life are just like the episodes in our lives. Perhaps Peter's most important statement comes in verse 17 when he says to Jesus, Lord, you know that I love you. This is the third time Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, almost out of exasperation, it seems, says, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. It's kind of like what Peter is saying here is, Lord, I realize sometimes it may not look like I love you. I realize sometimes my love for you has faltered and failed. I realize sometimes my sin has obscured my loyalty towards you and my love for you. Yeah, sometimes my love may be hard to see. But Lord, you know me. Lord, you know my heart. You know my deepest desires. Lord, you know that I love you. Peter's life is the life of every disciple. We've all had great failings, but we live for a great cause, and we pay a great cost. We face the prospect of death squarely. We look death squarely in the eyes, just as Peter did. Because like Peter, we have this sure hope of final victory. We seek to follow our Lord in all of life, though sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we stumble in making comparisons between ourselves and others, but our failings do not define us. Jesus isn't finished with us just because sometimes we fail. We can still bear great fruit for his kingdom. That's Peter, and that's each of us. Now let me turn briefly here to John. Let me wrap this up by saying something about John. John is certainly not as prominent in the narrative as Peter is. Uh, and, and we learn here that John's story is going to be different from Peter's. They each have their own unique callings, their own unique stories in terms of how they will serve in Christ's kingdom. Uh, John, as a narrator, clarifies that Jesus did not actually say he would live to the final coming, uh, that that's not what Jesus said, just that if that was his will, it would happen. Uh, and perhaps that was an important clarification uh, when the gospel was first written uh, so that people would not expect Jesus' final coming within John's lifetime. But John then goes on to wrap up the gospel by giving his credentials and his calling. He says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. John here is giving an eyewitness account. And he says, there are others who confirm it. We know that his testimony is true. That sounds like it could have been added by somebody else if it's talking about John's testimony. Or perhaps it's ultimately talking about Jesus' testimony. There's been a lot about testimony and testifying and witnessing in John's gospel. But whatever the, whatever the details of that are, John makes it clear. His unique calling is to provide this testimony to Jesus. And through this testimony, which really we can say now is the gospel of John, this is his testimony. Through this testimony, the world will be convicted of its sin. And through this testimony, the world will be brought to salvation. Peter and John are both apostles. They're both witnesses to Jesus. They share in the same mission, but they have unique callings within the mission. Complementary callings, really. And so it is with all of us. We are all called to bear witness to Jesus, to what we have received from him. But that doesn't mean there's some kind of cookie-cutter approach to the Christian life where it's all going to look exactly the same in every one of our lives. It's not. Just like Peter and John had different ways of sharing in the mission we each have different ways of sharing in this mission and, and testifying to who Jesus is. 
And then John wraps up the gospel, reminding us there is no way to give an account of everything Jesus did. Indeed, if the deeds of Jesus were written out one by one, even the world itself could not contain all the books that would need to be written. The work of Jesus in his ministry was so great, so glorious, so unfathomable, so uncontainable that that you just couldn't even write it all down, even with all the books in the world. And of course, Jesus continued to work in the world, now through his spirit given to the church. And we can say the same of Jesus' ongoing work that John does in his earthly ministry. There's no way you could ever give an account of each and everything Jesus does in our world. No way you could give an account of each and everything Jesus does in our world today. The work of Jesus is boundless. All the books in the world cannot contain an account of Jesus' deeds. And that's because Our finite words and our finite books and indeed our finite minds can never capture the infinite love and the infinite glory of the Word made flesh. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 